when you are working with really, really smart people who have a depth of education, they all love a good framework. I realized I had found something that I really loved. Storytelling, understanding what the ideas are. The visuals have to be in service of the idea. Hello and welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And my name is Paul Fairweather. And this week's guest is Andrea Sampson, who is a professional speaker's coach. And, of course, her job is to help bright people with great ideas communicate their ideas to an audience. And it was fascinating to hear about the role of storytelling, of visuals, and how she helps people. Paul. Yes, Chris, as you know, you know, we're on a mission to open up the conversation about creativity in business and the world through the lens of idea stories and visual cognition. And... Andrea could be our, our pin-up child uh, for this quest. Uh, she focuses on TEDx speakers and she has a business called Talk Boutique based in Toronto. So it was really a fascinating uh, look and it's really interesting, Chris, to have someone that sort of teaches people to do what you and I do, but to see the perspective of, of, a, of a teacher. Um, and and she, had, she had great stories, great experiences, great ideas. Uh, it's a really fantastic insight. So let's get her in. Let's get her in. Andrea Sampson, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thank you, Paul. I'm, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show, Andrea. Really excited to hear about TED and how you help speakers do what they do. Oh, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, Andrea, you're, you're from across, across the world for, to us. You're in Toronto. Just, can you just give us a potted history about how you came to be where you are, you know, how you got into what you do and, and what your journey's been. Sure. So, you know, I started my career in advertising. I spent, you know, almost 25 years working for some of the largest agency networks in the world on some of the world's most recognizable brands. And my role in advertising, um, I started off in client service, but eventually I, I ended up in uh, what's called planning or strategy. And so I spent most of my my days working on um, understanding uh, consumers and why we make the buying decisions we make, and um, and and doing research, you know, both quantitative and qualitative research, and doing lots and lots of presentations. And I got to a point in my career where I was um, kind of done with advertising. You know, I like to say I was an idealist in a capitalist world. And I, I realized that, you know, that, that my, my time was limited in, in the ad world, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I ended up with this uh, great opportunity to work, um, to volunteer at TEDx Toronto, which at the time, and this was many years ago, um, was one of the first TEDx's in the world and also um, became one of the best known and, and one of the largest. And um, I was hired as a speaker's coach, and I, I didn't know what a speaker's coach was. But, you know, given my background in advertising and all the presenting that I was doing, I figured, you know, this is not a stretch for me. I can figure this out. Well, you know, after that first year, I realized I had found something that I really loved. Um, storytelling, idea, um, you know, understanding what the ideas are. These were things that came natural to me. I didn't even know I had these skills, but working with TED speakers, 
it became clear. And here I'm working with some of the smartest people in the world. You know, I remember that first year, one of my one of my speakers was, you know, working on the worldwide uh, project to decode the genome. Uh, you know, and and so doing amazing work with people who I had never heard of yet. Why hadn't I ever heard of them? And this was, of course, the big question. And so that first year kind of opened my eyes. And the second year I came back and I was, again, a speaker's coach, but started to understand a little bit more about this world. And by the third year I came back, I was director of programming for TEDx Toronto. And I had decided to take a sabbatical from advertising. I was done. I knew that I was out, um, but I didn't know what was next. And it was from that place of inquiry that the idea of being a speaker's coach that got paid um, came to me. And I mean, it like at the time, I was like, well, no one would ever pay for this. But of course, it was a skill that came easy to me, but was so valuable to others. And, you know, the work I was doing at, at TEDx Toronto, we were taking these literally unknown people and helping them to, you know, helping them to help us see the great work they were doing in the world. And I wanted to do more of that. And it was out of that desire to take these amazing change makers and experts who were literally changing the world and creating a platform for them where we could help them to go beyond TED or for some of them, because they never actually would make it on the stage. I mean, we would have, we would get about a thousand applicants, um, for, you know, to be on the TED stage for 12 spots. So those 12 people who made it on stage, good for them. But what about the rest? And that was really how Talk Boutique, my company, was born. And that was, it was out of a desire to help these amazing change makers and experts um, become thought leaders and, and build their profile in the world. Andrea, why don't you talk us through some of the challenges you face? I've got in my mind's eye the idea of people with wonderful thinking, important messages to share with the world. And often that, in a way, is the problem itself, that they can't understand how to get it across to an audience. Give us a few examples. What's it like coaching these kind of people? Yeah, well, that's... You know, that is exactly the problem. When I, that the, the scientist who I talked about who was decoding the genome, I'll never forget that my very first session with him, he came in and he sits down at the, at the boardroom table and he opens his notebook and I glance over and it's all math. <laughs> and I think to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to help this guy. <laughs> I don't speak math. But, you know, the reality is that, that that is exactly the problem, right, with most most of these incredible experts, is that they are so good at doing what they do, but they cannot explain it. And so there's, you know, the technique that I use and the way in which we approach it is through story. Um, and this is, you know, part of it is I have to break them down a little bit because, you know, story has been trained out of them. You know, as scientists and academics and technologists, it is antithetical that they use anything that isn't fact or data. And so I have to um, get them to a point where I can hear their story. Um, and from that point, then we, we, we go into what their idea is. And so it's a combination of what is it that they want to talk about? Why is it important in the world? And what is it about... 
um, them that makes uh, that that brings a unique lens to what they're doing. And then we take that idea and we wrap it in story so the rest of us understand it. Actually, I was fascinated by what you said, that, that story has been trained out of them. Uh, we had on the show a few weeks back um, a guy called Professor Uri Hassan of Princeton University. He's one of the neuroscientists studying yeah. storytelling. And, and he's demonstrated that it's, it's almost defines how human beings connect with each other. Story is integral to who we are. And yet we've got ourselves to a position where stories can be trained out of people. Have you got any theories? Why has storytelling lost its status as, as the key to communication? Well, you know, and I, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a renaissance of storytelling right now. And I think, you know, we're starting to see it come back. But you know what happened, and you know, look, look, you can go way back to you know the the separation of church and state in the 1500s. But it was really, you know, that was the beginning of it, right? You know, where science and and the church um, separated, and and we had this war that that said anything that wasn't a fact was false, and so you had to have data and fact in order for it to be true. And certainly, if we look at our educational system, it trains us in that way. It doesn't value story. And so so our scientists and our academics and our technologists come up in a world of competitiveness where not only is it trained out of them, but they're trained to, in some ways, attack each other if the fact isn't 100% provable. And I think what we're starting to learn today and what is so important in terms of the way in which we're evolving as a society is that um, there is no such thing as facts anymore. We keep disproving them. So guess what? We need stories. Yeah, Andrea, I, I'm really interested. Um, and, look, and you know, we've spoken before and I was uh, licensee of TEDx Brisbane and had the privilege of coaching a lot of speakers as well. Uh, I'm interested in in how you do get people to open up uh, about their stories, given given this, you know, untraining that you've got to do or yeah. you know, to reintroduce them. So, Andrea, I'm really interested in how it is that you draw out these stories from people, given you know their aversion or you know that they've been led to believe that you know it's not proper to be telling stories in polite society. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, so. The way that I, so we've got a couple of tools that we've developed that, that help. So first of all, the first thing that I know to be true is that when you are working with really, really smart people who have a depth of education, they all love a good framework. So we start with a framework um, and we have a framework we call the talk canvas. So that is actually the beginning of the conversation. Um, so when I show them that there is a, there's actually a, a science to what we're doing, even though I wouldn't say it's a true science, but it feels that way because it's a framework. Um, so that's number one. It starts to give them a comfort zone where they're, where they're at. The next thing I do is I let them tell me all their data and facts. I let them get it all out. Um, and and they, they tell me all of that information. And it's important. But, and I take a lot of notes and I listen and I say it back to them so that they, they gain uh, trust in me that not only... Um, Am I listening, but I'm understanding? And that's key. When you're working with really smart people who are doing big things, they they want to know that you understand it and not just hear it. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll say it back to them in a way that they understand that I'm hearing it. And what I often do is I actually ground, so they, they'll talk to me sometimes for 20, 30 minutes straight, you know, lots of data, lots of facts, and, and they'll, they'll end on something that they think is their idea. And then what I'll do is I'll say it back to them and I'll cut it down into one sentence. Here's your idea. And, and what that does right away is it, it kind of shocks them that everything they just said could be boiled down into one idea. And, and I, I may not have the right idea, but it'll usually be close. And it's close enough that they're now, they're trusting me and they've exhausted themselves of all their data, in fact. And so then I can say, so tell me, why do you do what you do? And now we get to story. So to, to paraphrase, give that you that in one sentence, I'm guessing that um, that question, why, is your key to getting into the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I've learned over the years of working with so many different speakers is that um, often they, the, the, what it is they do, they're so deeply entrenched in it, they've forgotten why they do it. And so when I ask them why they do it, they actually have to take a breath and sit back. And, and it forces them into a place of their past and their history and their family and suddenly I'll start to hear little things and they they often don't know how to answer that question and so it it takes us in a bunch of different places. Andrea I was interested we probably loop back to the stories and ideas but obviously the third component especially for probably you know 99% of TED or TEDx talks is the visual uh, and Chris and I are very interested we're both visual artist Chris a photographer I'm a, uh, a painter um, and you know we use that differently but I'm I'm interested and again I'm assuming that you know the the default for some of these speakers is is the you know the, the data graphs and, <laughs> and the, you know text slides and stuff that we you know we know now you know that it's it's not the way to go but but I'm just interested in, in how you approach that in that sort of you know threesome i suppose of of the story the idea and the, and the visual cognition mm-hmm. so the way when we're working with the speaker visual is the very last thing we do and and it's done that way purposefully because the visuals have to be in service of the idea and it's really important right and and you know what often happens is everybody wants to jump into the visual first for the visual to tell the story. But the reality is that the speaker has to be the holder of the story. And the visual has to be what creates the emotional connection to the story, right? So it's like you're using them in tandem. And so what we're doing is we we find the idea, then we find the story, then we find the data and facts that support it. And then we go, all right, now, what's the visuals that are needed? How do we build this so we're creating a visual environment for the audience to be able to connect to the idea and to the speaker and to the story? And so it's the last thing we do. And we try and keep the visuals to a minimum so that they're impactful. Because if we have too many, you lose the impact of those visuals. You know, things like graphs and data, we only put those in if we absolutely have to. Um, and even then, when we do put them in, it's 
making them so simple that you can get it at a glance. Because again, when you're working with scientists and academics, to your point, you know, they'll often have like these eye charts that are like, holy cow, what do I look at? And so we'll take it down to what is the one thing you want this visual to say? Um, and let's, let's only show that um, because that's what you want your audience to remember and to connect to. And that has to be paired with an impactful statement when that visual comes up. So it's a see what you say, say what you see, a reinforcement happening. Andrea, I wonder if I could run an idea past you to, to see what you think. Um, and I completely understand what you're saying. Put the visuals last, because you, unless you've got the idea clear, then you don't know what you're illustrating. <clears throat> I wonder if there's also a role for visuals to help to identify the idea. Um, because visuals often bring out metaphors that, that bring mm-hmm. the idea to life. And if a person is struggling to articulate their core idea sometimes visuals can be a creative device to help people go oh yes it's like seeing that pathway through a forest that's and and straight up suddenly the idea crystallizes so is there a role for visuals up front do you think in so so is the question is there a role for visuals in the creative process itself um, or is there a yes. role for visuals in the on stage so in the creative process absolutely in fact I mean, we, we use meta, that, that is absolutely what we're doing. And, and I, you know, I'm a very visual person myself. And so I don't necessarily pull the visual up, but I'll say, it's kind of like this. Imagine you're walking through the forest and you see that. So I'm painting that, you know, the visual. So yes, that is so much of it is getting them into that visual mindset. So they're seeing it the way that I'm seeing it or vice versa. Um, so absolutely, it is part of the process. I should I should jump in here for anyone that's listening to this show and can't see Andrea on screen. She's wearing this beautiful, uh, I think, cerise top. You have hair that's dyed blue and beautifully shaped glasses. And so I can tell you're a very visual person. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, your visual personality is coming out really strongly on the screen. <laughs> Thank you. Andrea, who's, who's uh, one of your standout um, students, uh, you know, that you've really been sort of going, wow, you know, that, that, what, that talk is just, you know, it was just amazing. Oh, gosh, uh, now outcome. you're asking me to choose, you know, my favorite child. Come on, that's not fair. <laughs> well, uh, give, give us a couple. Give us yeah. a couple. <laughs> you know what? I think I always go back. There's one, one talk that um, I loved working with this speaker. He was an astrophysicist. Um, a cosmologist. And when I first, um, I remember sitting down with him at first and, and he wasn't sure what he wanted to talk about. And cosmology is the study of the universe. It's not the study of planets or, you know, it's the universe. So it's, it's kind of a big thing. And, um, and as we got talking, um, he starts telling me this crazy story about how he lived for a year in the South Pole. And I'm like, why would anyone live in the South Pole? Well, as it turns out, um, it is the driest place on Earth. And why is that important? Well, if you're a cosmologist studying the universe, you can't have any water getting in the way of seeing through these massive telescopes. So they're actually all in the South Pole. Well, what I loved about that talk and, and the process of working with that individual 
was here was somebody who is a very rational thinker. He said to me, I'm not creative. I hear this a lot from scientists. Um, <laughs> and, away. Yeah, away. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, come to find out that he's actually a poet. Um, and the talk, the talk, the way that we built the talk, and I, I, I still to this day love it, we, we took his story of living in the coldest and driest place on earth, the South Pole, and we we juxtaposed it to the origins of the universe, and we we interspersed it. So he seamlessly mo- wove these two stories together, um, like a piece of twine. And so he would go back and forth. So he was telling the story of the evolution of the universe, interspersed with this year of living isolated in this alien terrain where there was no water, where it was averaging minus 100 degrees, where literally um, it, it, there was no color because everything was gray. And it was this incredible story that juxtaposed each other. And it was just such a joy to work with somebody who had the capacity to think in both of these ways that, you know, the logic, but yet the creative. And it was, it was, yeah, I think probably my favorite talk um, that I, that I've ever worked on because it was just so beautifully done, you know, the, 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 the composition. Um, I mean, I love working with artists, you know, and it's, it's something that, and, and it's so many of the scientists I work with are artists, even though they don't think they are. Um, but it, it, it is, when, when, yeah. when you find that, it's just such a joy. As, as long as you're not con artists, Andrea. <laughs> well, well, that's a whole different kind of artist, isn't it? <laughs> Andrea, I wonder if I could ask kind of the, the opposite question which is is there ever a moment when storytelling isn't appropriate and, and the reason I ask this is I get a, a, a lot of questions when I'm talking to, to my clients about storytelling it's kind of I've got all this data I've got to, I've got to cram in I've got I've got important content facts I've got to put facts in and I'm thinking for example about say the weather forecast or a news report where they, they are doing a similar thing. They're saying these are the facts that you need to know and they're perhaps deliberately avoiding storytelling. So my question is, is there ever a moment when storytelling isn't appropriate? And if so, where? You know, I mean, I guess, so I'll answer that question maybe through a different lens, maybe through a story. Um, you know, when we think about storytelling, it is innately how we as humans are wired. And yet, it has been, as we talked earlier, been trained out of so many of us. And so there is a belief that, oh, you know, just a facts, ma'am. Like, let's just talk about the news and let's not bring any conjecture into it because we would, you know, in some way muddy what is actually happening. But the reality is our brain is wired for story. And when we don't use story, our brain tunes out, right? It, it, because all we're doing is we're speaking to... Um, you know, the frontal lobes of the brain. And, and that, because that's what listens to data and facts. And our brain is both associative and predictive. And if we're not speaking to the associative and the predictive nature of our brain, um, it is not going to listen. So 
So to answer your question, is there ever a time when story is no longer appropriate? Then what I would say is, well, unless you've got something that is no longer than maybe two or three minutes in duration, and you want people to not really remember it for very long, then sure, story is probably not appropriate for it. <laughs> Otherwise, you should probably have stories. Andrew, I, I have a follow-on question on that, and it's been my own experience with TEDx. The last one that we did, we had quite a few people that you know, were, had a compelling stories. One of them was Jessica Watson. I don't know if you know of her, but she's an Australian uh, and she sailed around the world solo when she was 16. Oh, um, right, yes. Only after, taking, uh, only after taking up sailing when she was 12 um, or thereabouts. Um, anyway, we had a few others and we had, you know, uh, some people with, you know, terminal illnesses and stuff like that. And I actually got initially a rap over the knuckles from, from TEDx in New York saying that, you know, this is not the moth. You know, this isn't about storytelling. This is about ideas. Um, but when I explained it to them what we'd done, and, and her idea was, and I thought it would have been about resilience and stuff, her idea was about preparation, mm. um, that you can't do this without you. And so her whole idea was around preparation. And when I explained it, you know, they said, yeah, okay, yeah, that's fine. Continue, continue, continue as you're doing. Yeah. But I'm just wondering, you know, like, obviously, you know, do you, uh, you know of the moth? Uh, do you know of the moth? Mm. Uh, yep. It's a, it's a, yeah. a, you know, for, for our listeners, it's a, a storytelling event which is also a podcast um and um but you know we're, we're not when you know we're you're not training moth speakers you know so it's you know there's still got to be an idea embedded there mm-hmm. so uh, have you had a, a similar experience where you've had someone who who's got too much story and can't get to the idea oh god um, yeah well that i mean yes yes um because i think that's one of the misconceptions that people have about ted is that it's all about story and, you know, they come yeah. in wanting to tell their story. And, you know, yeah. I, 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 so many times I've had to say, you know, with all respect, um, that's a great story, but it's not a TED Talk. And, and you know, like, it's not about the story. The story is the carrier for the idea. I always say stories are Trojan horses for ideas. And, and mm, so... Mm. Um, so you have to know what the idea is first. And even like like the moth is a great example. I, I mean, it's a beautiful platform. But I would argue that the best um, the best stories told through the moth are ideas. Um, because, you know, the problem is if we've got a story that is just a story, we're bored with it pretty quickly. Um we want them to be teaching tools. We want to know why you're telling me this thing. Stories are, in effect, metaphors. So it is something that happens a lot, and um, especially for in the in the TED world, that's where I've had to really push back and go, all right, that's a great story. Let's put that off to the side. We'll come back to that. <laughs> What's your idea? And and that's where you know that's where it gets interesting. Um, Andrea, well, I wonder if I could ask you about a thing I'm passionate about when I, when I discuss storytelling with other clients is, is the idea of a call to action that that a story isn't over until the audience have been challenged to do something. Uh-huh. And a lot of the people I talk to are quite threatened by that because they think it, the way to stop is to and that finishes my story and what I think and now let's have a cup of coffee and go away and ignore the point. It's pretty much yeah. And I suggest that they should challenge their audience to do something, whether it's walk into a store or pick up the phone or 
write an email, whatever it might be. What do you think of this idea of a call to action? Oh, I, I'm I'm on board with you. So whenever I'm I'm working in, in working with a speaker, and even our our talk canvas, the proprietary framework that we've created, it ends with um, so that in the conclusion piece of it, I always say you do three things in a conclusion. So first of all, there are no new ideas in a conclusion. You're not adding something new, <laughs> but um, at that conclusion, you're you're pulling down. So you open your talk. Um, through story, we want to engage people, but we are in that opening. What we want to do is leave, you know, what I call a dangly bit, something that you leave unfinished. Um, and so, in the close, we go back to that unfinished piece of the story, and we bring it back. Because what we want to do is emotionally engage the audience back to that opening where we had a, a, a lean-in moment, where we got them emotionally engaged. So you bring in the story, you restate the idea. Okay, because what the, that's what the story does. That's why we leave that little dangling piece that we can go back to, emotionally engage the audience and re-deliver that story or that idea. And once we've done that, then we finish it. The last thing that we want to say to our audience is what do we want them to think or do differently as a result of what we've just told them? And that's the call to action. And a call to action mm. can be a think different as well as a a do different. Um, and so it's important that we distinguish that, that we, we let, we, we, we challenge the speaker to think about why are you giving this talk? Is this just information? Is it inspiration? Is it, um, is it um, influence? Or is it persuasion? And each one of those will have a different call to action. If it's just information, I want you to know this and you need to take it away. If it's inspiration, I'm actually asking you to look at what you believe differently. If it's influence, I want you to think about those who know the thing that I've just told you and influence and perhaps be influential in that changing of ideas. And if it's persuasion, I want you to get up out of your seat today and do something. And so the purpose of the talk is entwined with that call to action. And so when we're talking to people about why you're giving this talk, we do that up front. What is the purpose of it? So that when we get to that call to action, it's like, okay, let's look at it through that lens. So um, I, I didn't bring it up, but I do always love, and it's something that sort of changed my perspective, uh, the books uh, Steal Like an Artist, uh, Leon Cleon or whatever his name is. I never remember his name. That's why I did. But in that, he talks about the three-act the three story, the three act story. you know, the, 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 the setup, um, the messy middle, and the climax and resolution. And it's something that I suppose I intuitively knew but didn't really understand was that he said that, you know, when you're giving a presentation the resolution's always up to the audience, you know. It's, you, you cannot resolve it. It's their action that resolves the end of the story. Right. And for me, I think that's fantastic. You know, like it's still tying up the threads, but it's allowing someone else to, to you know, to keep pulling the thread, you know. like uh, So I think that's, um, I think, that was really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a powerful thought, right? That Because I think, you know, again, and you know this because you work with clients as well, they want to tie it up in a nice, neat little bow. Um, they want they want it all to resolve. They want everything to be okay. And the reality is, we don't live in a world where everything is okay. And and we're still like we're still living our story. So the story isn't done. 
And so when we're able to kind of end on that place of a call to action, which hands it back to the audience to go, what are you going to do with this now? It actually allows them to not only pick up the story, but to live it. And I think that's part of it that's key is, again, if we go back to brain science, when I tell you my story, you're living your story through my words, right? You're putting your own memories, your own thoughts into it. And so when I hand it to you as a call to action, now it becomes your life and you're tying it up the messy middle. You know, you're tying up that messy middle with your way of, of, of changing it. And that's important because that's how, you know, when we look at, at, at the world we're creating, um, we all need to be a part of it. You know, all these talks, all these lessons, what are they, what are we doing? We're really creating something together. We're co-creating, but we just don't know it. Um, Andrea, just on that, back to that brain science thing. And look, I, I love that summation. Um, I think we mentioned earlier our last six seasons of last or seven, I think, end of last year were all um, neuroscientists. And so, besides Yuri Hassan, we had uh, Jonathan Schooler. Um, we had Moshe um, Bar. Moshe Bar, uh, a fellow from Australia, actually. Uh, Pierce, uh, Jonathan Pierce, who is about intuition and visual cognition. Um, they're all about half an hour, well worth a listen. Um, all good fun, but amazing insights that we that we've had. Um, Roger Beattie, who's a who's a who's a, I'm a big fan of um, from uh, from somewhere in Selena Bartlett. Uh, Selena Bartlett, who's an Australian. So yeah, it's really worth uh, checking out. Look, I know you probably know a lot of this stuff, but it was just a, a different perspective. To, to, to summarise that or to, to bring this to a conclusion, um, when we started out, you, you told us that you got into this because, you know, you discovered your passion and your other uh, thing, you realised that you, your time had come. Uh, so you left us a bit of a thread. Um, what I'm really, I suppose, interested in, you know, in this, you know, in this conclusion is, you know, what is your call to action to our, to our audience? You know, what... what uh, what would, you, what would you like them to think or do different um, in going forward to, uh, to get their ideas and stories into the world? That's a great question, Paul. Well, you know, so I'm in the process of writing a book right now called The Everyday Thought Leader. And the reason I'm writing that book is because I truly, truly believe that every one of us out there has a story that can actually be transformed, be transformative for others. Um, and, and so we can step into the role of thought leader. You know, each of us can. And the world needs more diverse thought leaders. You know, I think that's one of the things that the TED platform has done is it's created a democratization of ideas. And, and you know, with that democratization, we're starting to see people who we wouldn't normally see being able to um, articulate some really complex ideas. But the reality is the stories that we tell ourselves today is the future that we're creating 50 years from now. And so as each of us step into the stories that we want to create and tell them in ways that can influence others, recognize that you each have a role to play in building a future. Because when our thought leaders are reflective of the societies that they're governing or that they're inspiring, then we have a future that we all want. Um, today, our thought leaders, unfortunately, are not reflective of the societies they govern. 
And we need that. We need more women. We need more people of color. We need more neurodiverse people. We need more people with gender diversity. We need people of all, you know, all orientations to be showing up, giving us new ways to think. So the future we create reflects them. Fantastic. That's a great answer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andrea, well, thank you for joining us on the show, on The Common Creative. Um, we will get some notes and stuff from you so we can put some links in the in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, look, thanks. It's been great to reconnect with you from all across the world. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I've had a lot of fun chatting with you. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you to you, Andrea. You've really got me thinking about Call to Action, but also about diversity on our show. Um, you know, we have a good mix, I think, of men, women, but I'm thinking about the other aspects of diversity. So I really appreciate that last comment and also all of your thoughts on storytelling. Great to talk to you. Well, Chris, that was fantastic. I <laughs> really enjoyed that. As always, I really look forward to my Tuesday mornings when we can talk to amazing people from around the world and Andrea was no exception today yeah and I think I really learned that the power of having a coach when you're when you're trying to prepare a story the the blockage that some of us have is that the idea is so so close to us we can't see how to communicate it and an outsider like Andrea really helps you put it in perspective to understand the metaphors to understand the story that's going to connect with your audience yep so if you enjoyed it, please, uh, you can check out some of the links in the in the show notes for Andrea's website and that talk that she spoke about, the scientist in the South Pole. Um, <laughs> please give us a rating, five star if you really enjoyed it, and a review. It helps us. And most of all, tell your friends because it helps us spread the word about opening up the discussion of creativity in business and the world. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you or hear you on next week's edition of The Common Creative.